Projections. We live and we die by them. But how do they actually work, and how could they be better? I'll ask Ariel Cohen from Fangraphs and ATC Projections and Todd Zola, the Projections Meister for Masters Ball, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, February 9th. It's show number three of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Tuesday Tout edition for you with two great guests. We'll have a feature interview with Ariel Cohen discussing his ATC projections, including a new update to provide a tool to quantify variability. He'll also have his boons and banes. Then we'll have our second interview with Todd Zola, another projections expert, discussing early draft trends, misuse of StatCast metrics, why he drafted Trey Turner ahead of some likelier picks, his projections, and more. It's another big Tuesday Tout edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We have two of the best projection guys in the business in the house. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Tuesday Tout Edition, our first expert interview with Ariel Cohen from Fangraphs and ATC Projections. Ariel, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been a while. Oh, thank you so much, Patrick. I'm very excited and delighted to be back once again this year with you. Have you been drafting a lot of teams in the early going? So I haven't drafted any anything real yet. Uh, I typically wait as close as I can to the regular season. I think the, the labor draft in early March will be my first. I mean, I, I want to take volatility as much as you can out of the equation. So, you know, knowing what injuries happen in spring training and getting closer roles set to me uh, is an advantage to what I want to accomplish. Yeah, I never thought of it that way, but uh, it, it, the the flip side of it, and I know people who draft in lots of leagues, including mocks, but also a lot of real leagues, is by doing it over and over again, you get a better handle on what the shape of the draft is going to be like, uh, who the players are, especially as you get to the back end of the draft and so forth. But on the flip side, yeah, it is much more of a crapshoot, especially once you get past sort of the you know fifth or sixth round. You're starting to really guess a lot at playing time considerations, uh, batting order slot considerations, bullpen roll considerations. All of these things are yet to be settled, and yet you're being asked to make decisions on very incomplete information. Yeah, I mean, in terms of market, I have a very good check as far as... I do a lot of extensive research as far as what I think the market's going to go. I do track some mock drafts, and I do participate in mock drafts. But as far as uh, the variance, as far as having roles set, I think I'm much better as uh, an evaluator, as somebody who knows how to set what round a player should be bought in, how much auction dollars a player should go for, much more than guessing at what role. So if that's my strength, I'd rather have more of it settled as much as possible. Absolutely. It's like playing the stock market. You need you need as good uh, uh, information. It'll never be perfect information unless you're an insider, of course, but you want to have as much information as you can before you make investment decisions rather than just, you know, reading one thing in one tout and, uh, you know, some kind of online tout who says buy this penny copper mining stock or something like that. And you say, yes, there goes the house mortgage, you know, because it's foolish and, and it's uh, difficult to 
generate profit if you're working on that kind of really imperfect information. It becomes much more gambling. And I know some people enjoy that aspect of fantasy baseball. Uh, sounds like you and I are on the same page that it's, I, I prefer it to be more uh, theoretical and also more focused on what I actually do know than what I would like to believe. Yep, I definitely agree. Well, you said you have been doing some mocks. You've been watching the drafts, checking the markets. So what impressions have you formed so far about drafts in 2021? I don't think there's much different than what's been going on for the past two, three years. I think the trends are continuing of top pitching being drafted early. Speed is being pushed up. Uh, the NFBC ADP right now, 12 of the first 28 picks are starting pitchers. Uh, that That's crazy, but it's, it's what's been going on lately. Um, you know, a lot of people are doing the pocket aces strategy where you need to pick up two starting pitchers in your first three selections. I don't think you necessarily need two of them, but I do think that you do need one. Remember, if you go and do not have a pitcher in your first four rounds, you're going to be pretty behind when all the pitching is pushed up so much. You know, in general, you want to, you don't want to zig and zag. You, you want to be able to do whatever everybody else is doing just better. And so completely punting on pitching in your first four picks will put you at a hole. So I do think that you have to play the market and, you know, draft one somewhere in the top couple of picks for you. I agree with what you say, but I'm going to play the devil's advocate. And the argument that I've heard about zagging is, well, if you're picking just hitters in the first three or four rounds and, and eschewing the pitching uh, during that time when all of these top starters are going off the boards, you're going to get a lot better uh, picks on your offense. You're going to load up with guys in the fourth round that previously you would have had to go in the second round because so many people are, are loading up on the pitching. And the theory is that you can manage the pitching later on by streaming and by finding breakouts and that kind of thing more readily than you can with hitting, which is a little more predictable. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Uh, but my research has shown that picking an elite pitcher somewhere in the first uh, 8 to 10 pitchers has returned a pretty good return on investment. They've been pretty stable. They've held most of their value. Um, I've, I've found that the middle pitchers and uh, starting pitchers 2 through 4 or so are a little bit less risky, have been not as performing as well. They've lost a lot more value compared to where you drafted them. So if you think about that, the optimal construct, I believe, is taking one pitcher up top and then filling it out with bottom, bottom, bottom. So I, I do think you can gain and have a pretty good team uh, by, by drafting hit all hitters somewhere in the mid-rounds, but I do think you'd need that one big ace at the top so that you don't fall flat completely and you take advantage of some good return on investment opportunities. Now, BaseballHQ.com invented a plan they call the Santana Plan uh, a number of years ago, and I don't know that a lot of people adopted it at the time, but that was the principle of it. They said, grab yourself, uh, Johan Santana, that's how long ago this was. The plan was named after him, and he was a dominant pitcher at the time, and the theory was, get Johan Santana with your first pick, and he his tremendous innings, his tremendous decimals, the strikeouts, everything that you need, it has a tr really bigger foundation in your pitching lineup than even drafting a Mike Trout can have in your hitting lineup because the fall off from Johan Santana and in modern times we, we could say from, you know, DeGrom and Cole and, and Bieber to the next tier, even though it's fairly close, is actually wider than it would be from Mike Trout to Nolan Arenado, for instance. 
and that is exactly why you should. Um, according to my projections, I have uh, in a 15-team 5x5 format, I have the top three pitchers valued at over $40. The next highest, not even $30. So we're talking about a drop. There's no more thing prevalent just about that. The other thing I'll add, though, is that in today's game, innings is such a big thing. I'm not sure that a lot of pitchers who only pitched 60 innings last year are going to go past 150, 160 this coming year. So the more pitchers you can get to have 200, 190 at the very top end, the better it is. You want quality and you want a lot of innings of quality. And there are a bunch of pitchers, the three that I mentioned there, uh, the three that you mentioned, I should say. Uh, how about Trevor Bauer? Trevor Bauer is going to approach 200 innings. Um, you want to have more of that volume. That's going to be a much bigger success. I think it's even more important these days to do that Santana plan, plan than ever. Yeah, the Trevor Bauer thing is interesting because, you know, his his ERA is not as really established as being as helpful as some of those other guys. I mean, you know, an ERA around four with a lot of innings, I mean, it helps compared to 4.5, but it's not get, like getting three as an ERA over those same 200 innings. So uh, I, to me, the jury's still out on Trevor Bauer a little bit. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a case for that. I think ATC Projections has him in the uh, mid to high threes in terms of ERA. But again, you know, those strikeouts will prevail. And when you're throwing 200 innings of, you know, 11K per nine, you're going to get some nice strikeout totals. Uh, uh, Bauer is not going to fall flat in value. He's going to, even though he, even if he doesn't get a two ERA, he's still going to amass a ton of value. And you're looking in the first round of not going to zero. Uh, you're looking for somebody who's going to get 50-75% of their value, and I think Bauer is a pretty safe pick for that. He is, and he's been remarkably durable health-wise, uh, which is the other risk that people always bring up when you're talking about pitchers early, is that the perception anyway is that pitchers are much more prone to injury, and it's easier to lose a pitcher falling to zero than it is to have a hitter fall to zero through a season-ending injury. One, one you know, ligament in the elbow goes, and there goes your season. Yep, exactly, and you're paying for that with uh, low-risk pitchers at the top, which is why the market's doing that, and I think that there is some truth to it, and the market is catching up to what, what I've been doing for the past 10 years. Well, you talked about your projection systems, the ATC projection system, which is found on Fangraphs, and you've engineered a, a pretty impressive system. Uh, a lot of people are listening Ariel will know how the system works, but some new listeners might be interested to find out, uh, just in a broad sense, how does ATC projections work? So it's a smart aggregation projection system. I'm not doing work on my own to come up with player projections and hitters and, and uh, hits and homers and strikeouts and whatnot. I'm looking at other projection systems. I'm studying other projection systems and how they've historically performed, and I'm combining them. Um, I often give a hurricane methodology here. Uh, if, you, if you've ever seen spaghetti models for hurricanes where you see different models projecting different tracks, the center line, the ag aggregate projection of combining them isn't just taking some averages. You're looking at some of the individual models and taking the best parts of them. Maybe you're going to take temperature from the BAM model. Maybe you're going to take wind speed from the European model, storm surge from the Navy Global model, and so on and so forth. 
And when you take the best parts of each, you're going to come up with a much better model. Just aggregating on their own is going to reduce bias, is going to reduce variability for the coming year. But when you're doing it smartly, it's even better effect. Um, and so I'm blending different models. I've studied projections over the past couple of years. And I run mathematical regressions each year to know the best way to combine them to get a better fit between projected and actual. Uh, so ATC is able to uh, v accurately project just from looking at and studying other projections and knowing how to combine them. Uh, you know, two heads are always better than one, I say, and why not do that for fantasy baseball? How many uh, different projection systems are in your sources? Um, for any statistic, and of course it varies by statistic, there's maybe about 10 projection systems plus uh, the last three years of historical data. And uh, so the of the 10 source projection systems, not necessarily all 10 are in a particular category. You might use eight of them for home runs, a different eight of them for RBIs, a different eight of them for ERA. Yeah, it's going to vary. There are some projection systems that have no weight in some categories and a lot of weight in another. Um, I also vary it uh, for rookies or for people with uh, who have not had a lot of experience. There might be a different blend of the models as well. Uh, so there's different things going on as long as I can find enough credibility. Um, and the idea is is to uh, to give it the best strength. Now, I do want to point out about ATC is that you're never going to get an outsized projection. You're never going to get ATC finding the next 60 home run player where some other standalone projection might come out with a very outside projection like that. The strength in ATC is predicting is the hit rate, is predicting um, what players are going to be undervalued, what players are going to be overvalued, even if it doesn't exactly get the magnitude of that, right? I, I, I'll have a higher percentage chance of guessing on what players to buy and what players not to buy. And I think that the frequency of getting hits is more important than the magnitude. Because remember, if you're buying a player, you're not buying them at your own projected values. You're buying them at the market value. So if a player is $2 in the market, it doesn't really matter if you have 8 9 or $20 as your value. It's a strong signal to buy, right? $9, going, going for 2 I'm going to buy him. $20, I'm going to buy him. Now, you might buy the player a little bit more if you have a much higher projection, but you're still going to buy them at the $2 level, and whatever the upside of the player is, you're going to realize the entire thing. So getting a player right is more important than the actual magnitude, and that's something that ATC really does a good job on. The flip side of that, Ariel, seems to be at the top of the draft, all the risk is in the downside. And indeed, uh, Baseball HQ research and Ron Chandler's research have consistently shown that out of the 15 or 30 top players taken, almost all of them are money losers in the end. It's relatively rare for for many of them to come close to their lofty projections. Uh, but that's a, the nature of the beast, right? The higher you pay, the likelier you are to do poorly. It's the winner's curse in an auction setting. Yeah, that's fine. Again, at the top of the value, at the top of the curve, you're not looking to gain value. You're just looking for them to uh, recapture some 50-75% of their value, and that would still make them a strong buy at that position. The model you use to aggregate these projections has a lot of similarities to what Nate Silver does at 538.com. Listeners might be familiar with his work, uh, especially on political polling, where he looks at a whole bunch of political polls and judges over time which ones have been the most accurate and then aggregates them the way you're doing. And uh, was Nate Silver's work an inspiration to you in any way? 
Absolutely. That's where I got the original thinking from, or at least that's where it, it migrated to. Uh, I, I think I probably came up with it on its own, but as I started reading Nate Silver, I'm like, wow, this really does make sense, and i got to push it. Uh, I'm going to call myself the Nate Silver of fantasy baseball. Does that? How about that? <laughs> well, how about this? Uh, Nate Silver got his start at Baseball HQ, so he might be the Nate Silver of fantasy baseball uh, as well <laughs> as the, the Nate Silver of uh, political polling. Uh, I'm asking all of my guests uh, who specialize in projections this season, how are you handling 2020? Yeah, that's a good question, and I get that quite a bit as the, uh, a keeper of projections, if you will. Uh, I put out a survey, and I did an article uh, exactly on this topic from all different kinds of people who make projections, from the automated formulaic projections to some more manual-type projections. And the common thing that I, theme that I got was that the automated projection artists are treating it like a mathematical model where if the season was a 60-game season, it's 37% credible. So pretty much you're going to use, for the going forward, more weight, in fact, to the 2019 season than the 2020 season. But the manual projection artists, they're taking 2020 more along the lines of as-is. Now, obviously, um, I'm talking in general here because uh, every, every specific player it could be looked at differently. Every statistic might have a different uh, um, you know, equation for, for how much credible the uh, season should be. But in general, that's the sense that I get. Now, ATC, which is a mix of both, right, both manual and the automated projections, I'm going to be somewhere in the middle just because of the way that I do it. So I didn't do anything special. I'm using the same kind of combination of all of them, but I do realize that you do have those two extremes embedded in ATC. For the part of ATC that I use historical data, I assumed that the 2020 season is counted as if it was an 81-game season, so essentially half credible, um, and it comes out to something about 33% in the overall weight in terms of my historical averages. In some projection systems uh, that I've t spoken with the people who do the work, after the machine, after the black box spits out its results, the owner of the machine then goes in and, and manually tweaks some of the projections based on experience, based on gut feeling, based on news or something that's come out since the projection system uh, was uh, produced the results and didn't know about these things, playing time adjustments and so forth. Uh, do you do any adjustments or tweaks once your black box spits out the uh, finished ATC projection system? So I do but not because of gut feeling. I think that you know uh, the machines and the formula that I've created with ATC, I'm not going to beat in the in the long run, right? I mean, I, if I if I wanted to touch a player here, touch a player there, uh, for my own personal rankings, I do that spa sparingly because I know that in the long run, I'm not going to beat the average. I um, mean, 2019, uh, Fantasy Pros deemed my rankings that I generate purely from ATC as the number one most accurate rankings of any fantasy expert. So uh, there's a there's a reason not to tweak. Um, but what I do tweak are a for errors. Often I get a projection system which just is is an outright error, and if I leave leave it in there unadjusted, then it really screws up the overall ATC average, so I do have to change that. Uh, B, the playing time is, is the big thing. Sometimes embedded in the data, it's clear that a projection system might not realize that, oh, this player is hurt, or this player got traded is in a new situation. So if I have a reason to believe that a certain projection within ATC that's underlying is off, I will in fact tweak it. Um, 
Well, so if I want to make a very quick change, right, and, and not wait, some ATC you have to wait a few days in order for the the underlying projections to update to get ATC updated. But if I'm drafting tomorrow, I'll make a quick change on my own uh, and cut players' time, you know, manually if I have to draft tomorrow. That kind of thing would happen. Well, I'm sure by now a lot of listeners are thinking, i got to get myself a, a look at this. Uh, where does a curious fantasy owner find the ATC projection system and how do they use it? So I'm on a couple of different sites right now. You can get them at Fangraphs, at Sportsline, at Rotoballer, and at RotoChamp as well. Um, for Fangraphs, they're available three different ways. You can either get them in total by just going to the Projections tab and clicking ATC. You can also get them on every single page, every player page, I should say. Uh, just click on a player and you'll see the ATC with a bunch of other projection systems as well. But also, there's an auction calculator on Fangraphs. A lot of people ask me, hey, Ariel, where can I get your rankings? And I don't publish rankings because the truth is that every ranking of fantasy players depends on your own league's format. So I don't want to suppose that you're playing in such and such a format. You can go to the auction calculator, type in, hey, I've got uh, one first baseman, one second baseman, eight pitchers, whatever whatever your league rules are and scoring system. And if you click on ATC and click compute, it will give you not just a ranking, but also an auction dollar amount for each and every player. So that's the three ways to really use it on fan graphs. Uh, check them out. I have checked them out, and uh, it's really an excellent system, and I like the uh, valuation system. The auction calculator, I think, is a real help as well, because once uh, you can download the data, first of all, you can you can manipulate them right on the web page. Click on a column header, and it'll resort the uh, the data by whatever that column has, whether you want to do descending, ascending, however you want to work it. But what I like doing, of course, as many do, is I download it and put it into Excel, which gives me more freedom to manipulate the way I like to manipulate things and, uh, you know, do different roundings and that kind of stuff. So it's really a, a, an excellent way to present data. It's not uh, unique to ATC. A lot, of, a lot of good websites do a similar sort of thing, but your information is really interesting, and it's certainly part of my decision set that I use when I'm starting to formulate what I want to do and how I uh, aggregate uh, the information that I'm going to use. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt with Ariel Cohen, the uh, founder, I guess, the engineer of the ATC projection system. And earlier this week, Ariel, I was talking with Baseball HQ's Ryan Bloomfield about this whole concept of range of outcomes for players, the idea that any player projection is not an expression that the projection system expects exactly the stated outcome, but it's some kind of midpoint in some kind of generated range. What is the projection in your thinking if it's not this concrete idea? Well, I mean, at my day job, uh, currently, I'm an actuary, um, which means I'm doing insurance math, and I'm constantly making and running projection models, typically loss models. So I might be looking to predict the number of houses uh, in America that my company insures that will catch fire, or the amount of damage, or simultaneously, the amount of damage that those houses might catch. Uh, <laughs> I am not going to be able to come up with an answer that there will be 3,895 houses that will catch damage and give a total of dollar amount. No one can predict that uh, to that decimal point. The idea is to come up with a methodology and a model that's able to get what the long-term average 
looks like. Because every year to year, there's going to be some variability, right? Just because the long-term average says it's 3,000, one year it could be 3,500, one year it could be 2,500. And there's a range of outcomes that's totally normal within the true value of what the long-term average is. So uh, that's what I mean by it's, it's uh, a projection is really a range. The number that you see in most projections that you see online for baseball, that's just an average or a median, maybe a 50th percentile outcome of what could possibly be. But know, know that it, it's a range. I mean, if a player gets injured, his number will be zero, right? So that's a possibility, too. Uh, it's, it's about taking what the true value is, the, tr the long-term average, and knowing that there's a range of possibilities inherent in just playing every single day, only 162 games. That's right. I think people sometimes misunderstand that a 162-game season, 650 plate appearances, represents a large sample, and it really still isn't a large sample. It's a larger sample than a 60-game season with, you know, 225 plate appearances, but it's still not big. <laughs> and uh, the smaller the sample, the greater the range of outcomes, uh, I think, is a truism in, in this kind of uh, theorizing. And as a result... When you're looking at a 162-game season, you have to expect and you have to accept that the 25 home run projection, if the player hits 17 home runs or 32 home runs, that projection was correct. You know, you might grumble and say, oh, the projection was all wrong. He hit way fewer or, oh, look at the, this projection system is great. It got me seven extra home runs. But the fact of the matter is because of the inherent variability, all those outcomes were functionally correct and the pro the projection system was functionally correct. Yeah, exactly. Um, to, to look at uh, the insurance world since I deal with it, um, how about hurricane insurance? If you're having hurricane insurance in the state of Virginia, well, you're not going to get a hurricane every year. You're not going to get a hurricane every two years, three years, right? But when I'm pricing insurance for it, I have to understand that there's a probability that you're going to have a hurricane. It might be a 20th percentile outcome. It might be a very uh, an 80th percentile outcome. It might be very, very remote, but you're going, you're going to have it. And there is variability around it. Uh, automobile insurance, that's m a lot more predictable. If I know if I have uh, $2 million worth of premium that I'm writing in business, I'm pretty guaranteed that the range of outcomes will fall between a million and 1.2 million, and then I can expect a certain amount of profit. Um, there's more variability and less variability. Um, some players are more variable than others in terms of their outcomes, right? It, it's good to know all that, but you should understand that it's just not a specific number. It's a range of possible outcomes. You're just showing a median or an expectation. I mean, you have to you have to bid a number. You have to draft a player based on some kind of expectation, but just to know that it could be higher or lower. And that's the interesting part because theoretically, anyway, if you understood that the what the what the variability was and in which direction it was likely to be variable, likelier to be variable, I guess I should say. So if you have two identical players or seemingly identical players, both projected for 25 home runs, but you understand that player A has greater variability towards the upside and player B has greater variability toward the downside, that's very valuable information to have because it means you can feel more comfortable bidding up the, the, the player with the upside and not bidding as much or as aggressively on the player with the down. When we talked about this, Ryan and I talked about it, and I've talked about it with others, Ariel, that the, the challenge seems to be how to express 
that inherent range of variable outcomes without publishing a page for every player with his, you know, zero to 10th percent outcome, the 20th percentile outcome, all the way up to the 100th percentile or 90th percentile outcome. And you have an article coming out explaining how you've come up with a way to portray this idea by splitting the outcome variability into two components. The first is what you call process risk. And the second is parameter risk. Could you explain what those two things mean? Sure. Well, what I've described so far in terms of outcome range is the process risk, that inherently you're going to get a player whose true value might be 25 home runs uh, hitting, but you know, just because of sample size, 162 games in a season, some years he'll hit 30 and some years he'll hit, he'll hit 20, right? It, it, there's a range of there. That's just from the nature of small sample sizes. If we had a million games in a year, you would get a lot closer to that average in the long run. That's called process risk. But the question is, how do we know that the, the average is 25 when you're projecting, right? Um, that, that's what something that projection models try to do is, is come up with the, the mid-range parameters there. And the risk of you not being correct, the risk of you not identifying where the true talent lies, that is something that's called parameter risk, right? Um, process risk is something that's non-diversifiable. Uh, you, you can do all you want to predict uh, and, and, and exactly know the true talent, but you'll never get away from it. But parameter risk is something that you can do a better job of reducing. Uh, that's exactly what ATC does. Just, just from averaging it, it gets rid of a lot of the process risk of the outcomes. There might be some projection system that's way high and some projection, a projection system that's way low, but by ATC having an average, you're getting rid of a lot of the, the parameter risk. Now, one thing I've, uh, I've done for this year is uh, because we, we, I, I know there's a range of projections, um, why don't we look at the range of outcomes of what projections say is the true talent? So I've created two different metrics that study this interprojection volatility. Uh, one of them is standard uh, interprojection standard deviation and interprojection skewness. With these two variables, we sort of see the shape of what projections see about a player. If a player has a very tight range of projections, meaning they're all projecting about 25 homers, well, then it's very low risk in terms of what the parameter risk is going to be, and you'll see a very small interprojection standard deviation. On the uh, on the flip side, if you have a player that has a very wide range, he's all over 15, 20, 40, you're going to get a very large number of standard deviations in the interprojection volatility. And so when you can look at it on an ATC, and I have the numbers all over at Fangraphs, you can see which players there's a large discrepancy in terms of their outcomes. But um, there's sometimes you get projections both up and down on average, and sometimes you get a skew. Maybe there's one projection that's really high, but the bulk of projections are below the average. Well, then you have uh, a projection that's skewed positive and vice versa. If there's a projection that's a lot lower, that's keeping the average down, the bulk of the projections are going to be above it. That's skewed negative. So with ATC now, not only do I give you the average, but I'm also giving you an indication of how projections look. Are they skewed positive or negative? Are they very variable or not? And that gives you more information as to the makeup of the projections and the parameter risk of a player. 
It's a really interesting concept, especially this idea of skewness, because as I said earlier, I think that what you're describing, Ariel, is the idea that there's a player with upside potential and a, a player with downside potential based on the skewness of the of the of the projection and the shape of the the curve and whether it's got long tail right or long tail left. It it helps the person using the projection to understand where the upside and downside risks are. And I use the word risk to mean variability, not risk of loss. Risk is not always about loss. So how, how do you apply these concepts? How does the owner apply these concepts in your projections when he or she is sitting at the draft table or, or finishing up their draft prep? So the early indications and the early research that I've done uh, looking at some historical data is that the higher for high valued and mid valued players, the higher the interprojection standard deviation, the worse the return you're going to get on your money going forward. Meaning if you had a player that has a very low standard deviation, let's say a dollar or two dollars in terms of value, then there's a better chance or you can expect a higher uh, return at the end of the year, higher actual roto value at the end of the year. If you have a player with a five dollar, six dollar, seven dollar standard deviation, well then he's has a lower chance. So in general, if I have a tie break, obviously you're gonna pick a higher ex expectation than lower. But if two players are close, maybe this will be the tiebreaker. I've seen Vladimir Guerrero and Pete Alonso uh, are roughly the same project dollar amount by ATC, but Vladimir Guerrero Jr. has a lot wider range in its underlying projections, Alonso a little bit less. So if I had a tiebreaker, I might go with the less variable one. As far as skewness goes, I found that uh, the higher, the more negative skewed, the better as well. So if you have just one projection that's that's much lower, why skewed negative? It means that the bulk of the projections are above, and they agree. And if they're above, that means that there is some upside to whatever you see against the ATC projections. So in general, for a nicely valued player, you want lower standard deviation and a negative skew. I have seen, though, at the very bottom, this higher standard deviation actually works in your favor because you want upside. You don't care if there's a downside. You want upside in a player. So if you have a low $5, $1 player, you might want to take the standard deviation that's higher, right? Uh, and that makes sense, and it's exactly what my early research has shown so you know this kind of flavor of, of how the projections look uh, actually are, are an actionable thing that you can do and what I found is that the fantasy baseball industry hasn't really had a good answer for how to measure risk how to measure the, the volatility I know Ron Chandler with Babs has attempted to to do some kind of categorical study of it but I don't think we've had a good way to quantify it and with the ATC projections quantifying parameter risk this is really a great step in, in that direction and something that we should be looking at very carefully as we go forward here as a community well, there was a guy at Baseball HQ years ago, John Bernson, put out a, 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 a periodical. He called it the graphical player, I think, and he attempted to use visual representations of the data to show uh, the standard deviations and skewness of his projections. And uh, it, it never really caught on that well because I think the, it's very difficult to show those things graphically. But I know uh, at Baseball Perspectives, the Pakoda projections – uh, when you open the spreadsheet, there's actually a tab for 10th percentile, 20th percentile, 30th. So the data are there. The problem there is 
you've got to look through 10 tabs of information to get, you know, uh, to get the kind of information that you're looking for. Whereas what you're doing, it sounds like is putting kind of a, a, va- a, la- a value label on those two concepts, which makes it a lot easier and more applicable or more useful for the, for the owner to add those concepts into, into his roster planning. Yeah. Uh, again, you know, just two numbers, uh, the standard deviation and skewness give you a really good idea of the shape. Now, what Picot is doing is they're doing process risk. And again, process risk, you're not going to be able to get rid of. It's going to be there. It's good to know about it. But you want to be able to minimize your parameter risk, and you can. So studying parameter risk, I think, is far more helpful for, for the fantasy player. And you can do it with that Picota data, but you have to add a add a, add a page to the end of the of the workbook, and and then manually put in or formula in the uh, the various outcomes at various percentile ranges, and then try to figure it out for yourself. And frankly, it's uh, with a lot of these things, including the projections themselves. I think it's more work than it pays off to do if you're a regular fantasy owner or fantasy manager because there's all these experts like you and like Ron Chandler and like Ray Murphy and Todd Zola are all putting in a lot of effort and a lot of experience into building these projections. I don't think it's worth my time to go and build another projections engine. Yeah. And it's been done really well. And and frankly, the what you did with... Uh, with uh, ATC projections is take those projection engines and refine the outcomes of them, which raises the utility of them to a new level and really makes them very, very helpful for play, uh, for fantasy managers to use in their day-to-day planning, in their roster planning, in their draft planning. And I'm sure during the season, there are applications as well. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, thank you for comparing me to Ron and Todd and, and Ray and, and, and all those great experts there. Uh, but, you know, my, my idea here as a fantasy analyst is I want to take a new, unique perspective on fantasy baseball. And as an actuary, I work and my job is risk management at my company. So I'm taking all of these elements, statistics and modeling and all these perspectives, skewness and standard deviation, right? And I want to take this and use it for fantasy baseball because, believe it or not, it's really really similar. Models are models, and if you understand how models work, you can better better yourself, and you can better the model. So I think that I'm in the right position, especially since I study all these underlying projections. I'm really in the right position to tackle this, and uh, you know, this is not the end of, of it. This is not a be-all, end-all statistic that I'm giving here, but I think it's a very first good step in understanding the underlying interprojection volatility uh, as giving you one flavor of a possible way to quantify a risk of a player. I agree, and I have one more question about this before we move ahead, Ariel. Uh, all the examples that we've talked about have been hitters, and the traditional belief or perception is that pitchers are more volatile than hitters. The projections are more volatile. The performances are more volatile. Uh, what did your work on figuring out these uh, these new advanced measurements of volatility tell you about the difference between hitters and pitchers, if indeed there is one? That's a good question. I found that for hitters, uh, using these volatility metrics are a stronger indicator of how they perform. With pitchers, there is an indication, there is a correlation, and using it does help. 
not as much as for hitters. And I think the reason for that is because when you say pitchers are variable, I think it's talking about the process risk. The range of outcomes for a pitcher is dramatically more different than the range of outcomes for hitters. We know that just from variability. So if you're talking about the total risk of a player, um, the process risk is going to be a larger element of the total risk. And so the parameter risk is identifying the parameter risk and using it to your advantage is not going to be as helpful because the process risk for pitchers are greater than hitters. So that that's the story. Uh, again, it is helpful. I found a correlation that's just not as strong as for hitters. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt with Ariel Cohen, the founder and engineer of ATC Projections. You can find his work at Fangraphs, and he's got a podcast, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, but, uh, Ariel, I like to wrap up these discussions by talking about boons and banes, and I think this could be really interesting with you because you have this additional insight as to player performance, which could really help uh, fantasy managers figure out which players are potential boons and which ones are potential banes because you have this, as I said, this added insight. Uh, let's start with some boons. These are players you think that are going to help fantasy teams in 2021, and I don't mean, uh, as I'm sure you understand, I don't mean... Mookie Betts is going to help fantasy teams. We all know that. These are a little bit more surprising than that. Let's start in the American League with a Boone hitter. I really like Fran Reyes going into the 2021 season. Um, Fran Reyes is still just 25 years old. He hasn't really hit, even hit his peak yet. Two years ago, he had 37 homers. We're talking about a 40-homer upside player here who's going to get full-time at-bats in Cleveland. He's going to bat in the heart of the lineup, so he's going to knock in runs and get and score. He has a lifetime barrel rate of 13%, which is very high, and he's been very consistent with that. This is not a Joey Gallo or Adam Dunn type. He's a lifetime batting average of 263, and I think that has some upside to it. So you're not going to get steals with Fran Reyes, but we're talking about a player going in the 11th round who could produce third, fourth value production. And since we're talking about interprojection volatility, it's only 270, uh, which is low. The the average player is about three dollars, three and a half dollars. So projections are pretty tight on what he's going to do, and that's a very big bargain in fantasy baseball. And a way of thinking about that, I think, Ariel, is to say before you came out with these measurements of volatility, anybody who would be looking at a Fran Reyes uh, or a player like him two or three years ago or five years ago might look at the Baseball HQ projections and Todd Zola's projections and, you know, Marcel the Monkey and whatever is out there and say, boy, look at all these projections are very close on Fran Reyes. That gives me confidence that Fran Reyes is going to be somewhere in the envelope of these of these projections rather than, oh, this one says he's going to hit seven home runs, this one says he's going to hit, you know, 45 home runs. I don't know what to think. Exactly, and that's the whole point of, of the interprojectional standard deviation, that it tells you a snapshot right now, uh, he's worth this much, and by the way, projections agree. So it's a very good data point that you can get right off the bat. In the National League, uh, who's a boon hitter for you? Uh, how about Eduardo Escobar? Um, here is somebody who's going in the 21st round of ADP of NFBC drafts right now. Uh, but he's not a 21st round player, uh, not by a long shot. 2019, he hit 35 homers. Uh, you know, he's a guy who had a career year, 
had strong regression. The question is, is the career year more of what he can accomplish, or is it the bad year in 2020? And I'm going to go with the fact that 2020 was more unlucky than 2019 was. He had a 244 Babbitt last year. Uh, but if you look at some of the other stuff, you know, his average exit velocity was actually up one mile an hour last year. So if you project simple regression going upwards, well, then you've got a player who's... Uh, doing exactly what he's been doing all his career, and he's going to get a nice amount of uh, counting stats. I have him projected for 73 runs, 79 RBIs. People lose track that the counting stats, the run production stats, are 40% of your total 5x5 roto value. He's a guy who's maybe a $10 player going for $2. He's one of my best bargains. He is the best bargain of any corner infield that I have, uh, and a guy I think that you should take a look at. His interprojection standard deviation, again, 270 as well. So projections agree. They do. I was just looking at them, and uh, the five uh, projections that are available when you look at a player page on Fangraphs have him at uh a low of 22 home runs, a high of 24, and it, the same is true all across the projection. So again, um, nothing's perfect, but boy, you have to like a guy who's got this consistent uh, a set of projections as well. Uh, over to the mound we go, American League pitcher who could be a boon? I like Tyler Glass now. Now I'm picking him despite the fact that he has a $5 interprojectional standard deviation, which means projections are all over the place for him. But uh, look at his interprojectional skew, minus $1.50. That's a very highly negative skew, which means that his ATC average, whatever it is, is propped down by some outlandish projection. Most projections for Tyler Glass now are above the ATC projectional average, which is actually pretty good. He had a 38% strikeout rate last year as a starter. If you look at his pace, uh, he would have pitched on a pace of 155 innings, which is not great, but that would have translated to 246 strikeouts. That is phenomenal. His The problem, though, is walks, very high, but they are getting better. Uh, I think that last year was unlucky with his 4 ERA. He had a 23% homer-to-fly ball ratio, but you know because of that, his XFIP was 275. Um, I think that it's just a case of bad luck. His whip has been great. He's a ratio stabilizer. Last two years, he's had a 1.0 whip, a 1.01 whip over that span. Um, I don't think that Glass now has to pitch a tremendous number of innings to get a tremendous value. And if even if he's hurt or or whatever for for a couple of starts, you're going to get a replacement level pitcher to pad some of the projections in there. So I think that his value and where he's going. I think that is a nice bargain in the fourth round. The home run per fly ball rate has been over 18% in two of the last three years. Is that a source of concern for you? I know it's like down under 10 in 2019 for Tampa, but and then he bounces up to 23.4 last year, but that's, you know, the small sample size and everything. We'd expect that kind of bounce. But uh, 18% in two of the three previous years, is that a bother for you? A little bit, but last year I'm going to discount quite a bit because, remember, he played in a lot of AL East parks, right? He played in Yankee Stadium. He played in Camden Yards. He played in some of the nice—he uh, uh, played with the um, Citizen Bank in Philly. Uh, so I think that um, I'm going to discount 2020 quite a bit in terms of the home run fly ball rate. I think you're going to get something quite a bit lower this coming year. And how about a National League boon pitcher? I'm going to go with the reliever for this one. How about Edwin Diaz? 
Um, he had 50 strikeouts in just 26 innings last year. That's a strikeout rate of 46%. Imagine, every other batter is a strikeout. That's incredible. Uh, if you would have projected it out for a full season, that's 135 strikeouts. Uh, if you're going to get a fourth or fifth starter, that's you're going to get that same kind of production, and you're getting it in a relief role. That's a huge, huge value. You're going to be up 50 strikeouts on the next person without even blinking an eye. His ERA last year was phenomenal, 1.75, and yet he only managed six saves. That's got to be unlucky that he only got six saves. Talk about bad luck. Um, he's had a 378 BABIP career with the Mets, right? That's That's incredible. Uh, 320 Babbitt would be considered unlucky. His homer to fly ball rate as a Met, 24%. As a Mariner, it was 13%. So we're talking about somebody who's only 26 years old. I think there's going to be heavy regression to career norms on some of these luck metrics. You have a guy who's going to last in the role the entire season, which I can't tell you for 20 out of the 30 closers that are available. So we have a low-risk guy. Uh, it's somebody that I'm very, very interested in. And... Uh, I, I, if you're gonna if if you're gonna pick a bet where closers are going, I think there's much less risk than taking Chapman, who could be injured, than taking Liam Hendricks, who's had a lot of luckiness. Jansen, who knows what he's gonna do. I think the risk reward for Edwin Diaz is so much better than other closers around him. And you had to get a New York Met in those boons, didn't you? Yes, of course. <laughs> uh. R.L. Cohen's Boons, Fran Moraes of Cleveland, Eduardo Escobar of Arizona, Tyler Glasnow of Tampa, and Edwin Diaz of the Mets. Uh, R.L., let's go over and look at those Banes. These are players you think are going to hurt their fantasy teams in 2021. And once again, let's start in the American League with a Bane hitter. I'm going to go with Dylan Moore, who I think is completely overpriced. Now, a lot of fantasy players see his 2020 potential, and ATC actually does project him getting close to that. But what people are missing is the run production isn't there. Seattle is a bad lineup. Forget about runs. Forget about RBIs. He's not going to knock in many people. And projections in general are very pessimistic about his run production. Um, I think that there are many other better priced players if you really need the 15 to 20 steals that are going after the ninth round. I mean, I'd rather take a chance on Victor Robles, who's going two rounds later, than Dylan Moore. His interprojection skew, it's a buck eighty positive, which means that he's being propped up by somebody who's saying he's really great, but uh, there's a lot more downside in his parameter risk than you think. In the National League, who's a Bane hitter? Well, I did get another Met in here, but I'm going to go with Francisco Lindor. Uh, it's a little surprising. Uh, he's being taken late in the first round, and I have counted seven other shortstops that I value above Francisco Lindor. Now, positively, he is a five-category player. Right? He has a nice showing in every single category. But there's nothing thumping about any specific part of it that really warrants a first-round player, right? He's, he's good in every category and sometimes borderline great, but he's not great in every category, in enough categories. Uh, look at his sprint score over the years. It's been dwindling. I think that the Mets don't really steal that much. Um, so there's a possibility that he will steal less. Interesting, the Mets actually just picked up Jonathan VR today. We'll see how that plays out. But I think that uh, Lindor will struggle to get to 20 stolen bases. His power, his barrel rate is heading down. I don't think he's a lock anymore for 30 home runs. 
batting average. I'm only projecting 265, which is good, but not great. That's not what you want to come away with in the first round. You want to be much higher than that if you're going to pick a player. Uh, I think I'd rather take um, Bo Bichette. I think that he's all not all that much than what Tim Anderson, who's going to give you, uh, that's quite a bit layer. And I think shortstop is on the deep side this year. Uh, so if you're going to take a, a, a player, I think you just need a little bit more thump. And if you do the, the numbers, he's not a first-round player, according to ATC. Uh, I just think that people are overdrafting him. Over to the mound again. Who's an American League pitcher who could be a bane? Uh, Zach Plezak. He's one of the most overvalued players, according to ATC. I have him projected for a 419 ERA, which in 5x5, 15-team is an $11 auction value, instead where he's going in the 20s. Uh, he had one very decent year, but it came with a 224 BABIP and a 92% strand rate. That means that 9 out of 10 batters pretty much were uh, left on base and not scoring on him. The Major League average is close to 70-75. Uh, just expect a normal year for him. There's going to be a ton more runners scoring on him. I think that his, his ERA was way, way, way lucky this year. And he's being drafted at the expectation of what he did last year. So uh, you can't buy a player at what he could do. You have to buy a player lower so that you can get upside. And I don't see any upside in profit in Zach Plezak. And finally, a National League pitcher who could be a bane? I'm going to go with Max Fried. I think this is just another pure regression case. I don't dislike him as a pitcher. I think he still had very quality. But, uh, you know, his his value has been propped up in the last couple years, mainly because of his win total. He had 17 wins in 2019. He had seven wins last year, which scales to 19 in a full season. Um, he had a homer to fly ball rate of 5%, which is... Pretty, pretty lucky, and he plays in a hitter's ballpark. So we're talking about a player who's pretty good. We're talking about high threes ERA, mid to high threes ERA, which is fantastic, but not where he's going. He's going quite a bit higher, and I think people are over-pushing up the pitching in the middle, and you should not do that. Uh, Max Reed should not be taken where he is. So again, I like the player, but I don't like the value of where he's being drafted. And that's the key. Uh, oftentimes when we talk about boons and banes, uh, it's about the player himself, and it never should be that. I mean, if you think Max Fried is going to struggle and finish you know, 20% worse, but you can get him for a buck, you still got to do it because it's at that price, it's worth it. It's when the price doesn't match the expectation, it, the question of value comes in, and that's really the question that we shall always be focusing on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Max Fried is being drafted in the fifth round. Uh, what's, what's the upside there? Fourth round? Uh, I'd rather pick a player in the tenth round that can get me sixth round value, uh, right? It, it's it's your the opportunity cost. That roster spot is not being, you're not generating enough return on investment by picking Freed where he is. Ariel Cohen's Baines, Dylan Moore of Seattle, Francisco Lindor of the Mets, Zach Plesak of Cleveland, and Max Fried of Atlanta. Boy, Ariel, this has been terrific. I suspected it would be. It's super interesting. The work that you've done on this ATC with the uh, uh, parameter risk management is really, really breakthrough work, I think, and, and just going to be a very big help. Speaking of boons, for all fantasy managers out there who take the time to, to look into it and find out more. Now, you're going to have an article explaining all of this in much greater detail coming out on Fangraphs. Uh, do you have an idea when that's going to be? 
Yeah, it should be uh, this week. So uh, if you're listening right when it comes out, maybe a day or so after, hopefully, um, we're going to get that out. And, uh, yeah, definitely read that and take a look and, uh, you know, do, do some checks yourself. Take take two players who are valued similar, look at their interprojection volatility and see if you agree with that. And, you know, just maybe think to yourself, hey, you know, maybe I, I should be a little bit more cautious with one player or take a, a bigger gamble on another because uh, projections are pretty pretty squared away on one. Well, as I said, it's been terrific. Remind our listeners where they can keep up with Ariel Cohen. Sure. Uh, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at ATCNY. It's only five letters, so it's easy to remember, ATCNY. Um, you can read my work over at Fangraphs, over at CBS Sportsline, and at Rotoballer. And this year we've moved our podcast over to Fangraphs. Uh, we are now the Fangraphs Beat the Shift podcast. comes out once a week, usually Thursday evening into Friday. We do quite a bit of strategy. It's, it's more about playing the game, right? You can learn all the players, and there's so many good podcasts about that, but it's about talking strategy. Uh, and, 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 you know, on this podcast, Patrick, you, know, you talk about a lot of the intricacies that a lot of podcasts don't, and I try to do the same kind of thing on my show. It's called the Beat the Shift podcast. You can follow it on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod definitely look for it on any uh podcast aggregator apple google whatever it is beat the shift uh you'll enjoy it too and i'll look for my invitation in the email yes 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 uh patrick we, we've had you on every year so far and hope to do that again i hope so too thanks a million ariel it's been uh, terrific Oh, thank you so much, uh, Patrick, for having me, and uh, good luck this season to you. Ariel Cohen is the inventor of the ATC projection system. He writes and podcasts at Fangraphs, and his projections and other content are also available at CBS Sportsline and other sites. When we come back, our second feature guest expert interview with Todd Zola. Todd Zola is next on Baseball HQ Radio, but right now it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In alternative formats, analyst Bill McKnight takes a first look at 2021's player cards for score sheet baseball, focusing on defensive range changes, other defensive observations, relievers on the pitcher's list, and an exodus of third base depth. In the GM's office, Baseball HQ co-general manager Brent Hershey discusses the 2021 preseason plan for the site. And in Facts and Flukes, performance validation analyst Eric Floramonte looks at five American leaguers, including Sean Manaya and Luis Robert. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sample of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance and facts and flukes, as I mentioned, news updates and playing time today, and roster forecasting and playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse, and injury analysis in Matt Cederholm's column, The Big Hurt. We also have groundbreaking fantasy baseball research and, of course, tools like the player projections updated every day, in-season daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. When you add it all up, expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues, and they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Abbott. Time now for our second feature expert interview. It's Todd Zola 
from Masters Ball, Rotowire, ESPN, and Sirius XM. He's Fantasy Baseball's busiest guy. Todd Zola, welcome back. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been too long. Glad to be back with you during the uh, during the winter festivities, though. Good to, good to talk to you, Petey. It's great to have you as well. Uh, listen, have you been drafting a lot of teams in the early going in 2021? You know, not as well, a lot compared to the normal person, yes. But I I'll, I have not drafted as many as I may have at this point of the year. I'll be honest, one of the reasons is there were fewer magazines. Even though, you know, they're mocks, they're still drafts. You still learn the player pool. So I, I had a couple fewer of those. And even the, the, the pay drafts, uh, maybe one or two less, just because I had a lot of work to do. And I tend to get a little chatty in the, in the, in the chat room of these drafts. And I did not want to get distracted from my work. So I'm starting to pick these up again, though. So Mr. Chatty will be back uh, starting this week. Uh, I know the answer to this, but tell our listeners, where all are you working? Uh, my living room. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, uh, so Ma- uh, Master's Ball is the mothership. And I do freelance for Rotowire and ESPN. Our, the ESPN draft kit is going to... I don't like the word drop. I know that's what the kids say, but I, I drop too many things and break them. The ESPN draft kit is going to be uh, available starting this time next week, which I'm going to be contributing to as normal. And got a, uh, a couple shows on Sirius, one of them on the Fantasy Channel with our colleague and friend Jeff Erickson on Sundays from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern. And I'm on the MLB Network Radio with our friend Clay Link from 4 to 5 Eastern every Saturday. So that's, uh, and, and other than the laundromat, that's where you can find me nowadays. I was on with Jeff on his, uh, Rotowire podcast the other day. Oh, boy, yeah. it was a lot of fun. It really was. Uh, I know he's such a great guy, but you forget cause you don't run into him. Certainly with the uh, restrictions on travel, there's no first pitch Arizona. There's no tout. There's no travel at all. And then you, you start to kind of lose track of how nice people are. And uh, boy, Jeff's such a nice guy. It's uh, a lot of fun to, to talk with him. Uh, I, you haven't been participating in as many drafts as usual, but still quite a few. Plus you observe the drafts as they go on. What have you noticed so far in 2021 about any trends, any changes that uh, jump out at you? Well, I think, I mean, I don't think I have anything that anybody else hasn't noticed. It's just, it's a free for all with the, with the questions about 2020 and how we're going to roll that in. And it's, 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 it's get your guy there. You, you just can't play ADP chicken because you just don't know. It's the baseline. It's not trustworthy. So, you know, I mean, you take guys that you think are worthy of the draft spot, but you may take a guy a little earlier than normal. You may have tried to wait a round or two. I don't think you can do that, especially if it's any of these players with outlying 2020 seasons where you might be higher than the field, whatever reason you saw something under the numbers that you believe the change was real, et cetera. Get the guy if he's worthy of that draft spot. You can't, you know, all his ADPs three rounds from now, you can't play that game because it's the tr- the ADPs are just not trustworthy. At the same time, uh, as you said, he's got to be worthy of the draft round. And if you know right, the right. ADP's, you know, seventh round, how how long before would you be willing to wait, uh, assuming that nobody's going to jump you X number of rounds? You just want to be an X minus one. It's 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 a play it by ear thing. A lot of the ADPs, the NFBC, uh, they give a high and a low, so you have a feel for the range. Uh, it's a decent ADP just because if you're in an NFBC league, it's going to 
best relate to an NF- NFBC draft. Otherwise, it's it's tough to tell. It's a play it by ear thing, and I'm I'm way into roster construction now. So, and, and it's not as if I have I need this player in this round, that player in that round. But I, I do I tend to look at the big picture more. So sometimes it's not even trying to get them n minus one rounds. It's it's I I I have a feeling I need a pitcher in this round or something else. So I may have to jump off the next round. It's a complete touch and feel thing. And the other thing about it is, and this took me a while to to sort of come to grasp, come to grips with, you're not going to get all of the guys that you want to get at this discount or whatever it might be. Don't sweat it. You know, so what? Even if you only do one league, one draft, you're not, you know, don't worry. Don't do another draft just because I need to get this guy. Just put the best team you can together and, and, and live with it. It's going to be fine. So someone else gets one of your bargains. You know, chances are, they're going to draft another bad player, and it's not going to matter to you. So it, it took me a while to, to get used to that. There are some, some things inherent about the actual player pool that I've, I've noticed as well as far as uh, depth at certain positions and, and the, the, the fact that the second baseman, two-thirds of second baseman, have multiple eligibility, and that's kind of an important thing. And there's not a whole lot of elite second baseman, but it does go pretty deep. But the problem is people are putting second baseman at other positions, so the depth cuts out really quickly. So if you're in one of these draft and hold leagues and you want to back up your second baseman you know, in, into the, when you're in the 20s, 23, 24, 25th round, and you're looking to draft your backups, the second base backups are just a lot worse than the corners and the outfield just because so many of them have been – put elsewhere or even drafted as reserves because of their multiple eligibility. So I think it makes sense to try to get in on that. And if you could put a, a second, if you could put Kevan Vigio at third, at least during the draft. So that way, if you need a second baseman, you can move him over and you can draft a third baseman. I think you, you need to, to, during your draft, find a second baseman or two that are eligible elsewhere and air quote, put them elsewhere while you're doing the rest of your team. And then at the end, obviously, you can move everybody around. One of the things that come uh, has come up a lot, Todd, in my interview so far this year at uh, Baseball HQ Radio, is uh, the earliness of pitchers. And uh, that started, I would say, a year yep. or two ago, actually. But it seems to be getting even more intense this year, from what I'm hearing. Uh, you're in a draft with some first-pitch Arizona guys. And our mutual friend, Derek Van Riper, who's in that league with you, uh, commented on what he very imaginatively called the yellow brick road in the second round. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, why do they call it the yellow brick road and second of all what happened well the nfbc they color code the positions and pitching is yellow and uh let's see quick count here seven of the first eight pitchers in the second round i'm sorry picks in the second round were yellow so there's a string of yellow then the there was a a position player than another pitcher so it was eight of the first nine and 12 altogether or 10 altogether so it was just a cute way of saying a lot of pitching was drafted in the second round. And I don't think it's anything abnormal. I think the abnormal, you know, there wasn't a single hitter interrupting that, 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 you know, that string. But every pitcher went right around where air quality should have gone or has been going anyway. Yeah, yeah the, uh, 
The thing about it too is sometimes in in those snake drafts, uh, once somebody starts a run, so the 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 run starts at the turn, I presume, or right before right before the turn. Maybe if somebody's going pitcher pitcher on the turn, and then all of a sudden the next guy says, "Oh, there goes two pitchers," and I bet if I wait till my turn. Uh, you know, 28 picks from now, the pickings are going to be pretty slim. So I'm going to get my guy now. And then the next guy has the same reaction. The next guy has the same reaction. So it becomes a kind of a self-fulfilling thing. All it takes is for the two guys at the start of the round to do something with pitchers, with catchers, with whoever to, to start a, a kind of a run. And with so many people thinking about talking about publicizing the idea that pitchers are going to be uh, the kind of thing you want to get early in a draft, it makes sense that that's how it turns out. Right. And I coined the phrase, you may remember it, you may not, uh, from a few years ago, draft the pitcher, not the round. You know, it used to be, you know, 10, 10 15 years ago, you talk to people and interview them for the show, et cetera. I'm not going to take a pitcher to the sixth round. I'm not going to take a pitcher to the fifth round. And that point, it, it, it's not so much it was, it was actually, I mean, it, it, the strategy was okay because of the quality. But to me, you can't preset your rankings, whether it be, auction values in an order or whatever you want to do you can't look at the pitcher and say wow uh, i have him ranked 27th this is the 17th pick he's not worthy of this pick you, you can't do that you need to sort of figure out what your pitching staff what you want your pitching staff to look like it doesn't have to be the exact name but i want one from this group one from this group and you just have to draft the player when that group is being drafted you can't draft the round you got to draft the pitcher so this this is kind of a good example of that. Um, we, we can talk a little bit about general strategy, general approach that I'm using this year with pitching. But I was in the middle. You know, I was kind of in the middle. I took Lucas Giolito in the on the on the yellow brick road. He was my uh, he was my my brick, and hopefully he will be a brick. Hopefully he'll be a foundation building block. But uh, I kind of I did want one pitcher in this tier. I wanted to wait a little while before I got my second and third, but not too long. But, um, you know, I'm happy happy with Giolito where I got him. At that time, I believe if I'm reading the grid correctly, you, you could have had Max Scherzer, you could have had Luis Castillo. Why Giolito over those two starters? Yeah, uh, this is another one of my sort of mantras this year is uh, construction, roster construction, roster build that I look at these three players and I'm, I don't look at their ranking because the ranking's so close. I look at some of the character, other characteristics. Kershaw is, I'm sorry, Kershaw, uh, well, he's the same idea. Scherzer, there's just, there's risk. There's, there's risk and reward. He could, if he, if he doesn't get injured and he bounces back uh, whip wise, he's, he could still be a top first round top three or four pitcher. Uh, right now he, he was drafted like the 10th pitcher off the board. So there's risk there. Luis Castillo, sometimes we forget that whip is a category. And the strikeouts are there, the ERA is there, but he's a ground ball pitcher. There's a there's a bit of very the, the whip is is an issue. So I I don't like him I don't like drafting him as my anchor. And Dimitri Lito has just got the nice combination of floor and there is some upside still. I just wanted innings are going to be an issue. I see him as one of the pitchers that I, it's hard to project 200 for anybody. I think I have 200 projected for three guys, but he should be among the league leaders. Uh, I, I like the floor, and that's what I'm looking at for my pitching because it's a risky approach, but I don't like the middle. Other people are looking at the middle. 
because they're saying everybody's innings are going to be suppressed. So that's where I want to be because I, I, I'm not going to pay what it takes to get a stud. I'm getting some studs. I'm avoiding the middle and I'm just streaming the bejeebers out of the end. So that's what I'm looking for on Giolito is, is, is kind of the uh, buffer is to, to stabilize the early part of the staff. The true anchor starter, I guess, uh, is what you could call him. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Todd Zola. Always a pleasure to have Todd on the show. And Todd, I spoke with Ariel Cohen on the pod earlier, and I'm asking this of all my guests who specialize in projections, and I'm sure you know this is coming. How are you going to handle the 2020 short season when you when you build your your projections engine? Um, how much time do we have, PD? Not much. Grab a snack. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just, all right. I, 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 I'll talk about, uh, I think we're, you know, I think we're going to talk a lot about this during the, uh, the, the, the online first pitch Florida. I'm guessing that Ray and Brent are going to be, this is going to be one of the topics that they bring up, but real quick, I'll, I'll kind of touch on them. And if anybody wants to get a hold of me on Twitter for a little more detail, we can, but it's, it's, it's basically the one issue it's just how you handle the variants, the uh, the outliers in the, in the short sample. What do you what do you trust as being real? What do you trust as not being real? And to be honest, it's more of a guess than I'd like it to be. We'd we'd like to look at the Statcast data, the underlying metrics, but you know I don't know I don't know that I'm going to be good for the goose, good for the gander. I think there'll be some people that I say, well, I believe in this, I don't believe in this. So there's going to be more massaging than ever before. But sort of strictly by the numbers, the uh, the central zone, because there were three different leagues, there was a, an east-west and a central zone. The, the apparently the the talent was lesser in the central zone. It's uh, I, I made some adjustments with the pitchers because I think the pitchers had an easier time of it. If they're now going back to a more balanced schedule, I think you had to kind of kind of like fake the numbers into what if they had faced a more balanced schedule, what their what numbers have been, and then fold those into the ratios. So I made an adjustment for central pitching and I did a similar thing with the DH is, is uh, you have to sort of tweak 2018 and 2019 NL pitching as if they had faced a DH. This is still every day. My optimism wanes a little, but I still, I'm still on the, there will be a DH in the NL side. Uh, again, every day I'm less confident. So that's how my plan is. So uh, I made that adjustment. Park factors. I know we talk a lot about park factors. You can't trust two months. You can't trust two months worth of park factors. So I'm ignoring them. But there were a couple of renovations in a brand new park, and five places used a well, three new places used a used a humidor. So I'm going to have to make a best guess uh, for for those places. But in general, I'm ignoring park factors, which I don't think everybody is doing. And I mean, there are a couple other tweaks here and there. Innings, pitching, you're going to have to uh, calm it down a little bit. I know we want to talk about saves later, so I'll save that one. Not pun not intended. But there's uh, there's fewer saves in the league now, so you have to make adjustments there as well. Okay, two quick follow-ups. First, is there any boost in your method to non-central zone pitchers because they do get more shots at the central zone bad hitting teams? Uh, during the, once the schedule, assuming, assuming the schedule evens out again, it's, we're now back where we were previously. And I don't, it, the short answer is no, because the, the, the difference is less. And now you're just, you're getting into the, who you actually face home and away. 
And the, the delta between the, the quality of other pitchers just isn't that much as much to worry about. This past season, because it was so focused on the, ten, on, the, on the regions, it mattered. And I don't know that we know. I mean, I think we assume going in that there's differences. But even so, Minnesota's made some moves. and The Indians have made some moves. Uh, even the Royals have improved themselves. And the, the, the NL is a little bit different, although St. Louis is starting to make some moves. We don't know. We project, I mean, we could look at our projections and, and make a best guess off of that. But I, whenever I look at it, the delta going into the season isn't enough to make an adjustment. But this past year, coming out of the season, and this is this is sort of hard to explain. I, now we're you know we're going a little bit more the detail, but you can't just take whatever the woba weighted on base of all the teams all 30 teams and just weight it top to bottom and say, well, the this division is bad because they have the, the worst five Wobas because there's three different leagues. You, you can't take the, the AAA numbers and weight them with the MLB and say this hitter is better than this hitter because it was a different league. I know this is extreme, but the actual numbers themselves are, are, are you know, they're, they're a factor of the quality of the pitching within that region and the quality of the batting within that region. So if you've got the best hitting and the best pitching in the same region, the the Woba, you know, the, the average Woba, it, it, it's going to be in the middle. And if you've got the worst and the worst, I know this is, again, extreme, the uh, the, uh, uh, the same Woba of a batter, and when you have worst versus worst and best versus best, the Woba number is going to be the same or whatever metric you want to use. Strikeout rate doesn't matter. The numbers will be the same, but because of the quality competition, one's a better player. So I see a lot of people ranking – 30 teams together and well look at the bottom five the you know look at you can't do that because you can't compare because they're literally different leagues Todd you write the Z files column every week at Rotowire and last week the last one I saw anyway and you can correct me if there's a newer one but you talked about how some people misunderstand and therefore misuse the statcast average exit velocity metric it seems fairly straightforward. Hit it harder, that's better, right? So what's the issue? Yeah, well, we had this conversation. We've had this conversation on, on different levels about other metrics. And when, uh, when, we, when, when hard hit, when, the, when they used to measure hard, medium, and soft, it was sort of, well, uh, we, we learned and you were on the forefront doing the research too, that softly hit balls were actually better than medium hit balls just because uh, – Infield ground balls you can beat out, and outfield softly hit balls can fall in, whereas mediums are the old cans of corn. It's sort of the same principle, but now we're looking at exit velocity. Exit velocity, it's component. There's fly balls, there's ground balls, and there's line drives, and little you know a little bit of physics here. Sorry, folks, but you've got to go down this road. The ball is always moving downward. Gravity and and spin are. I know we talk about rising fastballs, but it's an optical illusion. The ball's always moving downward. And swing playing could be, you know, it could be in any direction. But you transfer the maximum energy, the maximum momentum to the baseball when the swing plane is as close to this plane of the, of the trajectory of the ball as possible. That's where this uppercut swing comes in so much, comes in, is so useful because it's closest to the trajectory of the ball. So the point I'm getting that at is, the average exit velocity of grounders and fly balls and line drives are all different. And not only are they different, depending upon the pathway of the individual player's swing, the delta between the three 
it's not consistent. It's not always, this is, you know, it's not always one's this much faster than this one and this much faster than this one. It's individual a player. And depending upon the pathway of each player's swing and just how they good they are at centering the baseball, uh, the component exit velocities for the, the different batted balls are different. So in it, it, doing some correlation studies, it, it showed that ground ball and line drive, yes, velocity matters, but the correlation was like in the 0.3, 0.35. It's it exists, but it's it's not all that strong. And fly balls was actually negative 0.15, negative 0.17 in that range, which the negative what that means is it, it the slower the, the the slower the exit velocity, the lower the exit velocity, the more likely it is to become a hit. Less likely to be a home run, but the more likely to be a hit. So, and I'm a guilty of this too. I look at the Statcast levers and. So and so's exit velocity was up two miles per hour, uh, therefore, and their BABIP was down. Therefore, I assume a regression. Well, that 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 may not be the case. You got to look at the you've got to look at the levers and uh, sort of the, the the components and kind of do it on an individual basis. Uh, it's tough to do globally, but especially last year when we got to use whatever we can. I'm finding some interesting examples of disparities between. The, the three different components. And then you run into the problem that we see an awful lot of the time too, with uh, people thinking regression always means getting worse. And, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's true. You know, we hear that all the time. Oh, he's going to regress. Yeah. And, and in fact, uh, what the regression is, is towards the established mean. If the player had a down year, he should regress upwards. Uh, maybe it's the name regression. I don't know. So that seems to be an issue as well. Todd, is there any data or have you seen any studies about when the stat cast metrics, uh, exit velocity we've been talking about, but pitch movement, you know, pitch velocity, these kinds of things, when they settle or when they become sort of valid for want of a better term, a few years ago, somebody did something like that for some of the, you know, less detailed metrics to, to determine that after so many plate appearances, you can trust the strikeout rate, uh, add another 300 plate appearances, you can trust the line drive rate and so forth. Has anybody looked into StatCast for when these metrics become trustworthy? Well, to, 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 uh, I'm going to take that in a direction you may not you know like, or maybe you do, I don't know. Uh, but the whole issue about, and some people call it stickiness, uh, that's kind of the pet term you know, when it becomes sticky, when it becomes trustworthy. The uh, the, the pizza cutter, uh, Russell Carlton, came out with this topic, and he has since came out and said not only himself, but well, not I mean, not only people using it, but he himself has been misapplying this entire concept. And the idea being, they they take a look at the number of events, whatever it might be, for whatever metric you're looking for, and they're looking for when the luck to skill ratio is fifty percent, and at that point you can start to say that it's real but the the, the problem is people if it was if it's 100 events whatever the metric might be okay so now it stabilizes after 100 events what the actual what it actually means is within that 100 events luck was 50-50 it is not forward looking it does not mean the next 100 events are going to have that same level it just means within that previous 100 events the luck had stabilized so the whole concept of stable stabilization points, it's being a little a little misused. Uh, to me, it still means something because the smaller the number of events, there still has to be a better chance that it's real. But I don't think we can use that hard number as 
regress to this because it, it all meant was within that hundred. Um, having said that, yeah, they're starting to do some of these studies. I don't know the numbers, but uh, you know, Saris is, is from of, of the Athletic talks about this sort of thing during our first our first pitch forums. They are doing it, and uh, exit velocity is to use his term stickier. It does it does stick now. Line drive rate does not. Uh, but the other hand, ground, ground ball and fly ball, or you know, I should say launch angle, the high and the launch angles are are stickier. So if if a if a batter is shown to be an increasing the launch angle, in theory anyway, there's a chance that it's uh, done consciously and it's, it is a new skill. But kind of what I was alluding to with the plane of the bat, if a, play, if a batter makes an adjustment and he's not scoring the ball up, that could kind of mess those things up. So it's being done, but be very careful, folks, how you apply it. It may not mean what you think it means. Yeah, when you say that, you know, uh, I remember that when uh, Russell Carlton came out with that and said it's backward-looking only. My first thought was at some point it has to acquire some predictive value. It has to. I mean, you know, everything in the world has probabilities, and the more times you watch it, the more certain you are about what's going to come, unless what it, what it establishes is that it's truly 50-50, and it's always going to be 50-50, and, and that's that. But these are skill-based things that we're talking about. And I would really like to see, and I don't know if Major League Baseball gets these numbers and just doesn't share them with the public, but I would like to see a, a metric for bat speed and launch, and swing plane angle rather than launch angle. Because I think that could be pretty predictive because, a, you know, a baseball swing is much like a golf swing. It tends to get into a groove and you can be fairly predictable on that score. And I wonder if certain players, once you understood that what their bat speed was and what their swing plane angle was, you would have a better handle on not the outcomes of the pitch, which is velocity and launch angle, but the actual skill that's going into it or the actual physics that are going into it. I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, and if I'm a pitcher... I want to know that because you you got to figure there are certain pitchers pitches that are best able to attack a certain type of swing. So you know if you if you know that this is the the pathway this is the type you're going to climb. You know, if this is a type A swing, I know that an inside slider or whatever is the best way you know, to to attack it. So I think yeah that that would that you know talk about next level. Yeah, that's next next level, and I'm sure it can be done if if it's not already being done. There's a lot of whatever you know this whatever we learn about had been tested for years before we knew about it. So they're testing this now. We just don't know it yet because it's still being tested. Or a lot of it's still proprietary too. There's a right, lot of right, stat right, class right. data that never make it into the public domain. Yeah, uh, exactly. Including umpire statistics, that, which were in there for one year, a, a few years ago, and then they just, uh, they call it deprecating them. They just took them out of the, uh, out of the stat cast uh, data that we get to look at as members of the public. Uh, in talking about an actual draft you were in, you said you drafted Trey Turner in round one, number three overall, I think you said. Uh, don't hold me to it. And no, right, that's right. It was right. And you could have had Ronald Acuna. You might have had Fernando Tatis in that position. But in a previous draft, you said you took Mookie Betts, and you thought Turner's profile was a bigger departure from Betts's profile, and you wanted to do that because it made a nice contrast, you said, from a laboratory perspective. But then you said... And I'm quoting here, every draft has its own flow, but I felt like I was fighting myself the entire time. And the implication was the choice of Turner had caused you to go on a little bit of tilt. What did you mean? 
So, right. So first, I'll quickly explain. These are a pair of drafts that I wrote up for my website for Masters Ball. So that's what I meant by a laboratory point of view. I'm, I was writing up these drafts uh, from a strategy point of view and a, a conversational point of view with a couple of the people in the draft. So I just thought it would be, I happened to draw this, I think it was two in one and three in another. So it just from a, from a, these are my, these are the players that I drafted. There may have been too much of an overlap and, or even the strategy, too much of an overlap. So that's kind of why I went Turner. And I, it's not as if I, I have Trey Turner ranked in a vacuum third. So it's not as if I made a reach either. But when you draft Turner over uh, another player, you do have to account for the, the, uh, the more, the, the extra steals and the, and the fewer homers, even if it is, you know, 10 and 10, you still have to account for it. It doesn't seem like a lot, but it, it it's enough. It's, it's basically, you've got more steals. The power is just, it's not so much the power. It's that my research has shown that people tend to waste early steals that have been drafted. They think uh, either they think, well, I got some steals. I better not waste them and draft more. So you, you really need to lay off steals even harder uh, when you draft them. So that's, that's what that was all about. And I don't know if it was a cause and effect with, with having drafted Trey Turner or if it was just – the particular draft itself, it was a different group of people. There was some overlap, but the, the rules were the same. And the only different rule than people might not be familiar with is this, we, we were allowed twice a week moves of pitching. So to me, that opens up a strategy about having relievers on your roster and then floating pitching in uh, during the good matchup. So it, 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 it handled things a little differently. But for whatever reason, and we, you've been in enough auctions and enough drafts, sometimes it just feels like everything's just falling in your lap. That not only is this guy ranked high on my board, but he's the perfect player for my construction. You know, that sort of thing. In the first draft, that's kind of what happened. But in the second draft, and I don't want to go overboard trying to comp compensate for drafting Trey Turner like it needs compensation. But I don't know. I wanted more power uh, than and less worrying about steals and for whatever reason the 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 players i it just wasn't as comfortable i i didn't there weren't a lot of times where i said cool this guy's the top player on my board and he's perfect for the position and the statistical need it just felt like uh you know i i, I was happy with each pick but it just didn't have that warm and fuzzy feeling like i happen to have for the other draft yeah, we all know that feeling, and a lot of times it is just, you know, it seems like you get sniped every round, and uh, and the top player yeah. available is a perfect match for a guy you already have, and so you you kind of have to start looking down the list. Yeah, that, that happens to all of us for sure. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola. Todd, you mentioned that you're co-hosting a radio show on Sirius with Clay Link, and uh, I think the last time I heard you guys talking, uh, you mentioned Trevor Bauer's free agent deal with the Dodgers. What was your take? Yeah, this is a, pop, a popular conversation topic around every place. Um, you know, as far as the actual signing goes, I, I don't know. I kind of, I lay off, was he worth 40 million? Is he worth this? Is he worth the one or two year deal? But, you know, I just, if you, you got to spend it. I'm not going to, you know, you know, teams are spending, teams aren't spending. Just let me let me know where he signs when he signs, and I'll I'll try to figure out what it means for fantasy. So from that angle, eh, it's kind of blasé. I don't. I, I, other people are going to be. There's no way he's worth 42 million. You know this, that, the other thing. Um, you know, if anything, 
yeah, you know, I playing a little bit of mind games, man, he, with his, he's already kind of, you know, out there on Twitter, et cetera. I, I think he wants to live up to it. So if you were allowed any narrative at all, to me, it's not the, he's going to get fat and lazy because he got a payday. It's he, he wants to show people he's deserving of it. So from that angle of it, I'm not going to factor that into my projection, but from a, you know, from a, you know, conversational point of view, I think he's going to be motivated. You mentioned the fantasy implications. What do you think they are? Yeah, this is where it gets interesting. Uh, from a, from a several different points of view, you know, his, if it wasn't for this past season, we'd be talking about how Bauer, you know, some sometimes he outpitches his peripheral or underpitches his peripherals. His his expected ERAs have always been well, not always been, but are usually lower than the actual. And and why is that? And he, he had the one year where it was kind of the reverse. And then he had last year and the, where the spin rate just went through the roof. And we can have a different day. We can have the same spin rate conversation that we did with uh, exit velocity where it's component because different pitches have different spins. And some pitches you want spin and other pitches you don't. But the point being, his the pitches you want spin, it, it, it just went up precipitously. Not that go down as precipitously. It just went up steep, just steep, steep increase. And if if you can promise me that whatever he did to spin the ball, he's going to do it again, then he could be. I think he's top. He could be top three. And if he gets the extra starts, it could be even be more. That's that's sort of the other factor. Is at least in his video, he said, "I don't need a team to tell me they're going to start me forty games. I just want the assurance where they'll consider using me on three days rest." When, you know, on occasion when it when it makes sense, and people look at the Dodgers and they say, "Well, they got so many pitchers. There's just no way." I kind of look at it in reverse and say, "The Dodgers are going to have a couple of times throughout the course of the season. Maybe it's to give David Price a break, or Walker Bueller, or or even Clayton Kershaw that or a doubleheader. If it's another another COVID season, maybe there's a lot of doubleheaders again. There's going to be." An, once every other month is three or four times, and that's all I think he wants. Where Bauer can work on three days rest and and, and and satiate that that urge, if you will, and still help the team. So I'm not projecting him for 35 starts. That's a little bit irresponsible because that takes away the possibility that he himself gets hurt. I'm still projecting for 32, I think, but it wouldn't shock me if he got 35, 36 starts and. It ended up helping the team. I had never thought of it from that point of view. The Dodgers, we know, are notorious for adding rest days into their rotation, but uh, it could be that he, he could solve a lot of problems in that regard because usually when you add a rest day, then you either have to put somebody else out of the, the proper yeah. rest and hurt that that person or the rotation or you have to bring somebody up from the minors or start a reliever and do do that kind of thing and maybe Bauer solves a lot of problems for them in this regard if the manager comes to him and says we could really use you this week to go on three instead of four and he says yeah I feel fine you know let's do it and all of a once sudden every other month yeah he, that's it <laughs> yeah well yeah once every five six weeks he's going to pick up four starts you know and and uh yeah th that would tremendously add to his value I don't know if you heard Gene McCaffrey on Baseball HQ Radio a, a week or so go uh, the first show of the season but he said if if he knew that trevor bauer was going to get three days rest throughout the season he'd make him the number one starter just because of the volume 
I think he'd take it. Another, I think he'd make the number one player. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. uh, I, I mean, there's a lot of we we're, that doesn't account for the performance risk that he is a three point eight guy, which is still really, really good. It's just you know, but no, yeah, absolutely. And I'll you know I'll take it to a slightly different level. Well, you know, not not, not much level, but perspective. Uh, I've got and just you, Darvish and Shane Bieber and Bauer. I have them essentially the same tier. So if I'm at the corner, if I'm on the wheel and DeGrom and Cole are drafted, and you kind of talked about before where if uh, 15, 16 wheel, maybe you don't want to wait to the third and fourth round to start taking pitching. And I look at the three of those guys. If I feel confident and maybe some, you know, by March comes around, maybe we get some quotes or maybe Bauer starts in the spring on three days rest just to, just to get it out there, whatever. And if I'm confident he's going to get a couple of starts, maybe that's my tiebreaker. And I'm not taking him number one, but maybe that's my tiebreaker for my pitcher at the wheel and uh, over, over Shane Bieber and over you Darvish. There's, you know, it's, it's hard, you know, they all have pluses and minuses, even as the third, fourth, fifth, sixth pitchers. But sometimes that's what you just have to use is you can't draft a projection. You're going to draft some of the characteristics of the pitcher that go into that projection. In another uh, broadcast or podcast, I'm not sure, uh, you and Clay were talking about some other free agent signings, and I was particularly interested in the Marcus Semyon deal in Toronto because uh, I've talked about this on the pod as well a couple of times, but it seems to me like the Jays just have too many bodies for the available slots in the batting order and on the field. How has your playing time analysis, Todd, settle on who ends up with plate appearances and who gets to play and who gets to sit? Yeah, so the, the a couple of the wild cards there, and I've heard reports, and maybe you're, maybe you can fill me in. You know, people are just you know, Vlad Guerrero lost weight; he's going to play third. Then I've heard that's not going to happen. I don't know. I'm not. I'm planning on it not happening because that's worst case scenario, uh, and that's kind of where this this question is coming from because that would kind of clean things up if Vlad was going to play a little bit of third base, but. And the other issue, in, as you know, as both a you know following the team and just an analyst, there's no one with just terrible defense among this group. That it's just you know even you know Randall Gritchick plays pretty good defense, so it's you can't you can't use well he's not that good defensively. Well, Teoscar Hernandez, but his his bat staying in the lineup. So I think it's going to be a little bit of everybody. It's not the answer people want to hear, but I think Lourdes Gurriel loses some, and I think Roddy Telez loses some. And I think that uh, Gritchick, Randall Gritchick loses some, and I don't think any of them deserve it, which is the which is the thing is is I don't think it's warranted. I think they've all deserved you know regular playing time. Uh, what will happen? Who knows? But you know, as a fantasy player, I, I can't you know I can't tell people this because they want to know. But these things take care of themselves. George Springer isn't all that you know durable anymore. He's had a couple years where he played all the time, but due for an injury, Goriel himself. So these things usually work themselves out. That's the real life baseball aspect of it. But from who do I rank where and who am I going to draft Zola? I mean, I'm going to, Telez is down my list a little bit and Gritchick's down my list a little bit. And good Lord, wouldn't Roddy Telez look good in a Colorado, Colorado Rockies uniform? 
Well, he'd look good in in the park. <laughs> I don't know if he's going to look good in anybody's uniform. <laughs> he's a, a pretty oddly built uh, character. Oh, that's, yeah. that, well, there, that is true. And, and, and we can talk about that. Yeah. He <laughs> can, can hit. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I've been doing an analysis that I'm going to pitch to Ray at Baseball HQ for a written article about uh, Rowdy Telez and the turnaround that he had in his entire approach uh, under hitting guru Dante Bichette. Uh, Bo Bichette's dad has, he's not the hitting coach, but he's, he's been with right. the team and he's kind of just taking guys under his wing and, and he's really made a difference in Rowdy Telez. You've got to look at the numbers to really believe it. Uh, you and Clay also had some ideas taught about speculative closers. Uh, you don't have to give us the whole list, but who are a couple of yours? Yeah, actually, I, something you asked, this reminded me, you asked me earlier, some of the things I've noticed. One of the things I've noticed is a couple of guys, uh, Nick uh, Nick Anderson and James Karinchek, they're being drafted as if they're going to 35 saves, lock it down, it's going to happen. And it very well may, but I think there'd be a couple of guys that are being drafted a little too aggressively. So my, I guess to answer a question from the beginning of some of the things you're noticing, I think people are pushing some of these more than likely, but not definite closers up to where they, you know, they think they're going to get saves. But to sort of counter that, uh, especially in a, in a league that doesn't connect it to the NFC with an overall where it's a standalone league, I'm loving the the, the Will Smiths and the Adam Ottavinos, uh, that type where they're good. They're going to get strikeouts. They're going to have. Uh, they're going to protect some ratios. You can use them even if they're not closing. But there's a pretty good chance they close. J.B. Wendelkin, I, if I'm mispronouncing his last name, I apologize. But uh, uh, right now, is it going to be is, is J.B. Wendelkin or Jake Diekman going to be the closer? I'm, you know, I, I get a lot of Wendelkin out there. Those are uh, three names off the top. Uh, Ottavino, maybe you know, I think he probably fits into the. Uh, he's he's better pitcher than Matt Barnes. Doesn't walk as many. I think he's there's a pretty good chance of the job, but you just don't know. And talking about uh, saves, you have an active and interesting Twitter feed, and I'd like to ask you about a couple of your recent threads. You said, and I quote, projecting saves isn't quite a crapshoot. And then you mentioned that you'd updated an older study. What did you learn by updating the study, and how have things changed? Okay, so basically what I'd like to find out is uh, how, how can you baseline save? What do saves correlate to? So the older study, I, you know, it's, you know, we always hear that, you know, you, poor teams get saves. Well, they do, but the research shows that the, the more wins, the more saves. They correlate, saves correlate very well to wins. So then you, you, know, you try to think what, what, what other ideas could one have? And the three obvious ones to me are runs scored, runs allowed, and run differential. So Doing the correlation between those three, the original study had the biggest difference. And I think people might think run differential is the answer, but it was actually ERA. It was actually, uh, well, what runs allowed, um, not, you know, because it, it, you have to factor in on, on any runs as well. So saves correlated best with runs allowed, second with run differential, and third with run scored. So one of the things I noticed was the delta. Uh, Run differential was runs runs allowed was still the best, but the correlation and I did this for eighteen and nineteen, two thousand and eighteen, two thousand and nineteen, just because short sample two thousand and twenty you can't trust them. And I had last done the study in two thousand and seventeen that the run differential correlated better than it did a couple of years ago. 
but it still wasn't as good as ERA or runs allowed. And the other thing I noticed, and I kind of alluded to this early, was 51, 52% of all wins had a save attached to them. Now that is down to 47, 48, 49%. And it can be, a lot of it just has, it can be just the way that uh, closers are being used. Although the way closers are being used shouldn't affect the number of saves. It just, it should affect the distribution. Uh, the distribution. I think the number has gone down. It may just be because of the run differential. It also could be because of the the super bullpens. There's a lot of bullpens out there that have got second, you know, setup men that could go, would have closed five years ago, but because of financial reasons, are getting paid a lot of money to set up. Where some of these other teams, you know, I'm not going to why spend money on a closer when we're not going to win that many games. So I think that's there's a financial angle there. But you know, o- overall, one the way I project saves, why it's not air quote a crapshoot. I then come up with a a base how many saves I think the team's going to get based upon their wins and based upon their pitcher ERA, and then I just go through and I say this guy's going to get seventy eight percent of this. Well, I usually like to end the things in zero and five, eighty five percent of the saves, eighty percent. This guy gets five percent, etc. And uh, I go from there, and then I you know, go back and look at blown saves. It's tough to use blown saves because, you know, you blow a hold or it's, if you blow it, if you're in a save situation in the eighth inning and you blow it, you get a blown save. So it's sometimes tough you have to drill down and look at some game logs and find out how many saves are actually blown in the ninth inning. If I wanted to sort of take the study to the next step and then do it on save opportunities and not just saves. Genuine save opportunities. Yeah, I, I agree right. with you. I've looked at this in the past, and I came up with the 50% number as well. And the way I look at it is if it falls from 51 to 48 or something like that, it's not worth thinking about. Oh, First right, of all, right. because it's, gonna f- it's going to fall that way pretty much across the board, unless you can look at you know certain teams and say the- this team is still going to uh, to get the, this number of saves, but there's quite a lot of randomness in it too, because the save opportunity depends on so many things that are outside of everybody's control. The score, you know, who's up, you know, all of these kind of factors all contribute to the idea of, is somebody going to be brought in to, to, to get a save? You know, and you don't know. That's just the thing. Uh, that's why I liked when you brought up a run differential. You'd think that a team that had a an aggregate small run differential would probably be acquiring it by a lot of fairly close games. Although it could be that that isn't the case, but that would be the way you'd uh, well, intuitively think you, of it. You might find this a little interesting as a numbers guy. I also do the absolution, uh, absolution, absolute value of the run differential just to get that close game aspect in there. And it was almost random. There was no correlation. Yeah. I kind of found that a little bit interesting. Uh, but, uh, you know, interesting, too, that the that the run scored was almost random. It, it was all about the defense. But, yeah, you're talking about the difference between 40, 50 and 48. It means nothing, folks, from your end. But, you know, from those of us that use spreadsheets to project, we might as well adjust it because we can't. Right? You know, yeah, that's exactly not? Yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean, I know that it exists. I'm, you know, I'm not going to, you know, lie awake at night thinking I'm cheating if I don't do it, but I can't. So I do it. And the thing too is now we're in the roundup because this guy gets projected for 37.4 saves and this guy projected for 37.6. Yeah. One of them's got 37 and one of them's got 38. And that one save, when you put in a dollar value calculator is probably, you know, a buck 
you know, unless of course that comes out to round off as well. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly. It all puts me in mind of when I was in university <laughs> and uh, I was an arts guy, but uh, we had to take a natural science in those days, and I took astronomy, and I was pretty good at it actually, and and uh, managed to handle the math. But I, I got it marked down every time I did a lab. I got marked down because I misused significant figures. Significant and I, uh, figures. I knew that. Yeah. yeah and, you and, <laughs> is, you know, it's the same thing in, in our racket that we, you know, I see a lot of projections and, and various uh, numerical data that come out and they're, they're presented to six or seven places of decimal and you think, for runs, <laughs> <You know? laughs> I don't understand how this works. You know, I, I appreciate the, I appreciate the uh, attention to detail, but that that and auction values. You know, people yeah. have present an auction value to a penny, and I think to myself, <laughs> well, I can't bid a penny. You know, and and I, I don't think like you said. I don't want to necessarily rank a guy who's worth 1953 over a guy who's 1937, you know, something right. like that. Uh, before we leave Twitter, you also noted, Todd, that middle infield is what you called crazy strong all the way through the first 20 rounds or so. Then you said it falls off a cliff. So how can fantasy players take advantage of that fact? Right. I think, uh, I think we may have talked about it. This is where there's so many second basemen that have multiple eligibility. And I'm talking, I mean, in a, in a, in a draft where you have uh, fab and I understand that's what most people will be drafting over the course of the year. But it, when we're drafting right now, there's a lot of draft and holds out there and, and, and best ball for instance, too. So it's kind of a different approach, but what I, in general, what I did find though, is that the, we, when we talk about scarcity and strength, the pool, we usually just look at who we draft. We kind of ignore the replacements. And I think that has to matter because people are going to get hurt. And okay, so you drafted a stronger player, you air quote won the draft, but someone's going to get hurt. And I, I, there's just a better pool of, if there's a better pool of outfielder and corner infield replacements, I want to have my backup middle infielders already drafted, but using multiple position eligibility perhaps placed elsewhere. So I think the way to attack this is or approach this is do just that. There are so many second basemen that have multiple eligibility that try to get one. And there's a, it's not just second base shortstop. It's first and second. It's second and outfield. It's it's second and third. Try to get a, a couple of those where you are, you know, where, where they're worthy of the draft spot and you can put them at another position because you can backfill that third baseman better in the reserve than you can the second baseman. And if push comes to shove and you have to use that reserve, well, now you've got that second baseman at third base where you can move to second base and keep the lineup stronger. So and it, it, it may just be this one draft because there was a couple people that went heavy on middle infielders. But I've always believed that people, when you do that, they were going to be drafted anyway by somebody else. And it just looks like one guy stacking up all the second basemen to create scarcity. But it's not as if those players weren't going to be drafted by somebody else. So I think it's kind of an artificial generation of, uh, or, or emanation of, of scarcity that would have occurred anyway. But it just looks like some guy did it. Our, you know, late Lar Michaels used to, used to love to do this and didn't, didn't bother trying to explain to Lar that it really wasn't doing what he thought it was doing. But it was fun. 
Well, uh, this was fun as well, Todd. I'm really glad you could make the time and your busy media schedule, a regular Howard Stern of the fantasy baseball business these days. Uh, remind us where listeners can keep up and uh, where, when, and how our listeners can get more from Todd Zola. Well, you mentioned Twitter, uh, at Todd Zola. And I, it's an active feed, but I'll, I will, I'll admit I don't answer a lot of questions on Twitter. I I'm a Luddite. I prefer to answer the questions on 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 baseball form on the on my Masters ball form, and I've recently taken over the Roto Junkies RJ bullpen. I, I so I, I will answer anything and everything on on a forum form. I uh, just I feel I owe it to the my customers and those that that are compensating me from freelance that I I don't give it all away on Twitter, but I'm happy to give it away on on those uh, on those platforms. Then uh, you alluded to I do a radio show on Saturday on MLB Network Radio with uh, our friend Clay Link from 4 to 5 p.m. And I uh, we, we paired with Jeff Erickson on Sundays on the Fantasy Channel on Sirius from 1 to 3 p.m. This is all Eastern. And uh, do a podcast with Clay every Friday and uh, guest shot once in a while on Sirius. And uh, again, doing work for Rotowire and doing work for ESPN. Unfortunately, the ESPN work is now behind the firewall. That's just what they're what everybody's doing now. So can't point you to the free stuff during the season. The the daily notes I do will be free, but um, you know I've spent my life, and you kind of feel the same way, other than this free podcast. But I've my kind of spent my life behind a firewall. Todd, thanks a million for helping us out. I know we're going to have you back at least once more before the opening day. And then also right before opening day, you, Ray, and I are going to get into a round table, talk about the season to come. And I really can't wait. I'm so excited. Just fingers crossed that it all works out and we get opening day on opening day. Thanks a million. Looking forward to all our talks as well. Todd Zola writes, podcasts, and broadcasts at Masters Ball, Rotowire, ESPN, and Sirius XM. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, February 9th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number three of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. Of course, I want to thank our guests on this Tuesday Tout Edition, Ariel Cohen from Fangraphs and ATC Projections, and Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, ESPN, and SiriusXM. Ariel's a very thoughtful and interesting guy and a lot of fun to talk to. Todd's a longtime regular guest here at Baseball HQ Radio and one of our favorites. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go wherever you catch your pods and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with another Friday News and Notes edition. Nick and Ray, Rob and Alex, and if I get off my keister, maybe my first extra innings comment of the season. It's coming up Friday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. 
The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.